Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. We're coming here to the back end of chapter 3. This is the final week of our mini-series of Mystery Revealed, and we're going to put a, try to put a bow in here where Paul, after chapter 3, will begin to switch gears in chapters 4 through 6 to take a bit of a different tack. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, when you get there, say, oh yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. Verse 20 reads, now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power that is within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forever. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of his word. This morning, I want to begin our time by playing a little game called Fill in the Blank. There is a movie starring Denzel Washington where he's famous for shedding one single tear during a scene where he's flogged. The name of that movie is Glory. The first two words of Georgia's fight song, Your Beloved Bulldogs, is what? Glory, glory to old Georgia. When you stop and consider a song sung by John Legend that formed the soundtrack to the movie Selma, He says, one day when the blank comes, it will be ours. Fill in that blank. Glory. We might refer to a person who tends to take credit for everything and doesn't give it to anyone else as a blank hog. What is it? Glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done, glory. There is, throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians, a silent partner. About three months ago, I told you that, but no one remembers sermons from three months ago, so let me remind you. (laughs) All throughout chapters one, two, and three of the book of Ephesians, the silent partner is glory. All throughout chapter one are calls to God's glorious grace. All throughout chapter two are calls to God's glory. And then all throughout chapter three, it is God's glory cemented in these last two verses that give us a picture of what's on Paul's mind. Now remember where he is in this prison, dictating a letter to Tychicus through a hole in the roof naked, beaten up on his face as he's bowed his face before the Father. And he gets to the end of this prayer. Remember this prayer that doesn't make sense? He's just stringing things together. And the tomfoolery and the nonsense continues because Paul begins to make up words to describe this phenomenon of God's glory. But before we get there, When I consider these two verses, I get stuck 
In chapter 20, verse 20 rather, now to him who is able. There are some words when you come across them. They are a sermon in a word. It's a life in a word. It's a song in a word, able. Now to him who is able. First point this morning, friend. I don't know how you walked in this room this morning. I don't know where you came from, and I don't care, but I need you to realize that God is able. We walk in, and we do Christian life, and we walk with God in ways where we have need after need after need after need, and many of us, if you're like me, sometimes doubt that God is even able. And and then I read... These words, now to him who is able. It's important for us to not simply apply this to our own lives. First, we've got to go back and think about all that Paul has talked about. We've just finished talking about the mystery of Jew and Gentile being in the same family, of God's manifold wisdom being on display, that what happens when people from different countries and nations and cultures sing a unified tongue to God, that that witnesses to the authorities and principalities and rulers that, hey, you lose, God wins, and all of this leads to Paul's crazy, confusing prayer that all of God's work and to, the, to know the love of Christ through experience, that we would experience Christ's love with one another, that all of this is wild and crazy. And then he says, now to him who is able. And I wonder if he's sitting in that jail cell thinking to himself, the only way that this happens is if God does it. I was thinking this week about the picture of what it means for the Spirit of God to work and exercise inside of us, and I was thinking about the idea of a mascot. You get a person who hops into this suit that's ostensibly been worn by 30 previous individuals who've sweat inside of that thing and who've coughed and sneezed inside of it, and so you get inside of this suit, and then you're smelling everything that they smelled. You're sitting in the things that they sat in. But when people see the mascot, they don't think about the person inside. They personify the mascot as an individual all their own. When I think about the ability of God, that an infinite, unbound God without limits would take up residence inside of humanity in his fullness, that we, in a sense, become like mascots where the power of God by his spirit works and lives in us so that the the, the call for the Christian life is to live in such a way that we draw attention to the one who's powering us. Same idea with Voltron, same idea with Power Rangers, same thrust and idea, just different generations. If you're into Japanese kaiju, same thought. You, you, you hop inside of something, the power is within, and the outside is a skeleton. As Paul is talking about the manifold wisdom of God being worked out in us as the church, the only way that happens is if God empowers us to do it because God is able. I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus is walking and he finds a leper and the leper comes to Jesus and the, and the thing that the leper asks, he says, Lord, if you're willing, 
will you heal me? And I love the question, Lord, if you're willing. That leper is under no pretense and has no concerns about the ability of Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. He's only concerned about whether Jesus is willing. And Jesus answers him in Matthew 8, 2 and says, I am willing. Our limited thinking about God's ability, and I'm not talking to everybody, but you know who I'm talking to. Our limited ability concern, our limited thinking concerning God's ability has to expand to consider the very fact that God is able. And here in this church at Ephesus, this leper who's on the outside of the assembly gets brought in. In Ephesus, those who are outside Gentiles, who are outside the covenants of promise, this is Ephesians 2 verses 11 and following, now are brought in. And for us, many of us who felt like outsiders, many of us who not felt like we belong, many of us who felt like we were on the margins have now been brought in. Why? Because God is able. Now, it doesn't stop there. Second point this morning, not only is God able, but God is infinitely able. Here's where the nonsense begins. Because in chapter 20, Paul uses this smashing of words that he essentially coins that phrase far more abundantly. That word, he adds the word hyper in the Greek to an already existing word that for it to mean an overabounding, a superabundance. In other words, Paul has to make up a word to describe just how able God is. Similar thought. When you consider Paul's words in Timothy concerning the beauty of Scripture, he uses the word God breathed. In the Greek, it's the word theonoustos. He makes that word up because what he's witnessing, he doesn't have anything in his lexicon to describe the glorious aspect of Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, he talks about the hyper-abounding, that God's grace super-abounds to him. He makes up a word because a word doesn't exist in human history to describe how much God's grace abounds. And here, he essentially makes up a word again to describe just how able God is. When you think about the things that you think about, Our minds are uh, just extraordinary, extraordinary instruments. And they're also desperately wicked. Because we think things that we would never say out loud. And I actually appreciate the people who sometimes speak before they think or they speak as they think. So you just never know what they are thinking about, right? But I want you to think about all the prayers that go unvoiced all the silent prayers you maintain in your mind, the things that you wish and pray and dream about, and you're like, wow, that would be awesome if that happened, but you're too afraid. You're too afraid to say it out loud because if you did, it might make it real. Side note, this is not part of the sermon, but just a teaching moment. One of the reasons that Jewish rabbinic scholars believe that God made Adam name every animal on earth It's because that they believed that nothing existed until it had a name. So in order for these animals to actually exist, 
Adam had to speak their name. It's one of the reasons why confession of sin is so strong. And James, when he implores these men and women and elders in particular to confess their sins to one another, it's because when that thing is spoken, it's real. If you're in a stronghold and have had a stronghold for a long time, you tried to deal with by yourself for a long time, it may be you're still dealing with it because you've never spoken it outside of yourself for it to live with somebody else. I don't have time to preach that sermon. The point here stands that there is something when we think, we think in many ways bigger and grander than we're able to vocalize. And even God's potential to accomplish those things is grand. You think about our prayers and what we actually ask and say, I tend to believe that we all pray too small. Because if we truly understood that God is infinitely able, then our prayers would match how big we believed God to be. Because in this hyperabundance, in this infinite ability, lies a latent power that we cannot understand. It's one of the reasons why Paul has to make up a word to talk about just how able God is. It's a latent power that we don't get. And when you think about power, here is power. Power is the ability to affect change. Think about where you were when Jesus arrested your heart. Let me just talk about me for a minute. I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was looking for everything except for Jesus. I was on my way. I was doused in gasoline going to hell on scholarship. That's where I was going. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus surprises me with his grace and shows up. And he rescues me in the darkness of my heart out of sin and despair into a life with him. When you think about the power of God, the fact that God and only him can take a sinful, blinded, self-obsessed individual, encounter them, and then turn their attention away from them to things that are of greater importance is a miracle all of its own. If you were to consider creation, I'm feeling my help now, Matt. When you start to consider creation, and the power of God, that God created all things based on a word. He breathed and everything existed. And from dust created love. From dust created emotions. From dust created man. From dust created the most technically masterful thing in all of the universe, power. And we doubt his care when he calls us his children. There is a latent power in the exceedingly and abundantly on display in this room. You think about where you come from. You think about who your folks were, the experiences you've had. And then think about the meals you shared over dinner tables, the lives that you've intersected with. The folks who, in essence, like the Gentiles and the Jews, worshipped on two mountains, somehow now worship on Mount Zion, the same 
God, this is powerful. Let me put it this way. What's happening in Ephesus is the human version of what Isaiah describes it will be like when the Messiah reigns on earth at his last, when lion will lay down with lamb, when the child will play with adder, and when the goats and the wolves will be together. The Ephesian church is the human version of that. We're watching in real time what people with common ancestry are doing to each other in Eastern Europe. Those are folks with common history, common ancestry, folks with a long history together for various reasons engaged in war. And many of us, we love each other and don't really know why. It's the power of God. And I think about what it means to be in an intercultural church like ours, to be a part of an intercultural church like Ephesus. And when I say intercultural, I'm not talking about culture sharing the same space. I'm talking about culture sharing their lives. I'm, it is so hard for one word, one look, one glance to disrupt it all. All it takes is one. It feels like we're living in a powder keg in the church where all it takes is one slip up and this whole thing blows up. But there's a latent power in each of us that has to remind us of what Jeremiah says in chapter 32, verse 27, when he says, behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me. No, an intercultural, intergenerational church is not too hard. No, getting people from different places and spaces together is not too hard. No, even my enemies who curse my name, who now come to love me and sing my praises. Nah, baby, that's light work. So whatever you're facing now, I just need you to know that I'm infinitely able. I, I got to keep moving because uh, I'm starting to get happy. Uh, he moves on from now to him who's able, the ability of God, to do hyperabundantly more than we even ask or think. The ability of God to do more, and then he qualifies it by talking about power. Now, according to the power that's at work in us, interesting phrase, third point this morning, God's power is commiserate with his ability. God's power is commiserate with his Ability. Now, when I was, I'm going to brag on myself for a minute, and you'll see how foolish this is here in a moment. Uh, coming out of high school, um, I was a, a decent football player. I was 230 pounds. I ran a 4.5440. Um, I squatted 450 pounds and uh, was just a really good athlete. When I got to Ole Miss, and I was, um, after, the, after my second year, I was the strongest person on our team, a uh, 375 pound. Uh, power clean and jerk, um, a 600-pound squat, and it's only 600 because they wouldn't let me squat anymore. They said it was dangerous, but I probably had 200 more pounds in me. Um, I, I was at that point in time, I bulked up a little bit, so I wasn't sub 4.5 anymore. I was a 4.61, 4.62 kind of guy. I'm out there trying to take everybody's lunch, okay? Um, when, it, when it came to what, what, would what we would do in the weight room, there's nothing I couldn't do. I could do everything. In fact, I could do it better than do next to me. Anything you can do, I can do better. There were dudes who were like, hey, I bet I can do this better than you. And I'm like, no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Watch this. Give me that medicine ball. Let me give you this work, right? So when I think about ability, I think there was a time in my life where I was able to do whatever I wanted. Now, 
over 10 years later, I can't do the same things I used to do. Y'all, I was doing sit-ups in my gym two months ago and pulled a muscle in my back. <laughs> and I'm looking at this picture on my wall like, where's that guy at? He's hidden in here somewhere. And the reality is, no, that guy's gone. That guy's not coming back. I'm running around playing with my children. I'm thinking I could do the same things I did 10 years ago. I take one lap around our living room and kitchen and I'm winded. Like, what happened? I've lost certain abilities. Just yesterday, my children and I were with my 89-year-old grandfather. It's a beautiful thing that my children have a relationship with their great-grandfather. And I looked at Courtney when we got in the van, and this is a man who, a Korean War vet, he's tended and had a garden his entire life. He keeps chickens. He's the most self-sufficient man I've ever met. And it was the first time I looked at Courtney and I said, he's slowing down. He's got a hitch in his giddy-up. He's a little more hunched over now than he was before. He's a little slower to recall some things than he was before. And this man, my grandfather, growing up was the most terrifying human being I'd ever met. And now I'm watching him with great gentleness interact with my children. There is in him, I find, an ability that he's losing. Many of us in this room, we feel the effects of growing older. And we feel the effects of what happens when your own body begins to fail you. And so when we think about ability, if it's only couched in our own lived experience, we can't fully understand the fact that God is infinitely able and his power matches his ability. He sleeps nor slumbers nor gets tired. He has no match. He is always able at the drop of a hat to do in a moment what we spent our lives dreaming about. And Paul says that God is able to do infinitely more because of the power that's at work in us. This is the mascot. This is the Voltron. This is the, the, the idea that we have within us something greater. Now, just dig it in here. Uh, what is actually at work within us, both within us individually and within us corporately? What's in us is the triune God who is in us, working in us. Okay, let me try this again. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working in us as individuals and as a church, and the power that he possesses is present now. Let me illustrate this. Uh, in the life of horticulture, there is the potential in a single seed for a thousand forests. In one seed, there is the hope of generations of trees beyond it. In a single seed, there is life that far outlives and outlongs and outlasts that one single seed. And once that seed is planted, that seed first has to die. 
its seed coat has to get sloughed off. The seed has to die. After it dies, then it begins to germinate. Are y'all with me? And in the germination, the seed begins to spread and grow. Now, here is where it can begin to get really dangerous for that seed because that seed becomes prey for fungi and microscopic organisms and other insects. That seed has the threat that once it breaks the surface, it cannot get enough sunlight or perhaps not get enough water. That seed has to endure and endure uh, myriads of trial and suffering and tribulation in order to grow. Follow me now. The seed, once it's in the ground and once it's growing, only grows because of suffering and hardship. And only does it grow through discomfort. The maturation and growth of that seed is through discomfort. The fullness of God dwells in us, beginning with the kernel of faith a seed of faith. Do you remember what Jesus said about a mustard seed? He said, if you've got faith like a mustard seed, you can do what? Move mountains. Now, Jesus ain't talking about you can literally go put your hands on the base of a mountain and be like, I've got faith that I can move this, right? It'd be the same of Tim Tebow putting Philippians 4.19 under his eye black and everybody else doing it like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, you can't. That's not what that verse means. Read it in context. But Jesus talking about having faith and throwing the mountain into the sea has little to do with the things that we can do by faith. It has more to do with the temple mount and all the sacrificial system represents of people trying to get to God on their own account. And Jesus says one small tiny kernel of faith can do away with all of that. Are y'all with me? So from this seed of faith now comes power. But that power is only realized when we go through suffering, through hardship, and through discomfort. Why is it that Paul has to say that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly according to the power that's in him? He points to God's ability. He points to God's power. And then in this phrase, he points to their inability and God's power in them. You will ruin a church if you're left to yourself. I will ruin a church if I'm left to myself. Friends, in our own power, we are wholly insufficient to bring any good, any kind, gracious, unifying aspects to the life of the church we need the power that's in us, and the power that's in us comes from a kernel of faith. And I love that seed of faith because the seed of faith don't have to be very big. We're not talking about the seed the size of an ostrich egg. We're talking about the seed that may be the size of a fleck of pepper, a seed so small, a faith so small that all it knows is I don't know a whole lot of stuff, but I do know who Jesus is, that he's real and that he's alive. That's all I know. A lot of other stuff I question and I doubt, but my faith is in the finished work of Christ Jesus. Friends, if that's the kernel of your faith, then baby, get ready to harvest the rainforest because that is sufficient. And from that faith comes power that we need to live together.
What happened in the American church in 2016 should have been preempted in part, in part, because so many Christians, myself included, assumed the person sitting next to me agreed with me. We assumed that the person that was in our church agreed with us. We should assume no thing, but that introduces a tension in us that when we have to look at someone in the eyes who voted differently, who lives their lives differently, who believes differently in ways that we think is utterly insane, we don't possess the power to love that person. We need the power within us that comes from this triune God. Here's a microcosm of that. For me, I spent the last four days praying for Ukraine, praying for the Nicolux, praying for the world and only praying imprecatory prayers against President Putin. And I realized that a mark of maturity in the Christian life is not when we pray for those who are like us, but how we regard our so-called enemies. And I wonder if Paul is pointing to the power that's at work in the midst of the Ephesians and in us saying that is what you need for all of this to be on display because there is a reality in which you'll need that to accomplish the thing that I'm saying next, fourth and finally, which is the reality that God will be glorified in the church and in Christ beyond time. Now here's where it starts to get good. Look at verse 21. Paul is caught up now. He's broken up this sentence into a couple of different pieces. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is within us, to him be the glory. Now, that's good. To God be the glory, great things he has done. We remember, you remember that old hymn, uh, the glory of God. We talk about glory, 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 glory. To him be glory. What is glory? Give me uh, a second to paint a picture of glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah looks up in chapter 6, and he's caught up into this vision. And he says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And around him flew seraphim, each had six wings, two to fly with, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet. And they cried back and forth to one another, saying, holy, 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 kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, of Gibberim, the Lord God of armies. The entire earth is full of his kavodim, his kavod, his glory, this weighty renown. Now, the way that I would illustrate it is this way. I may have told this story before, but in the words of Groucho Marx, if you've already heard this, please don't stop me. I'd very much so like to hear it again. So there was a night when I refused to get Bo Jackson's autograph, and um, I regret it to this day. But when I was in fourth grade in Birmingham, Alabama, we got invited to what at the time was a Health South Alabama Sports Hall of Fame induction. And that night, there were four legends who were being inducted at the same time. And so we get there. My mom has bought me a, a new suit and uh, some new clothes, which is a big deal for us. And I roll up in there, and we get in there, and it's folks in tuxedos, and it's like black tie affair, and it's crazy. And it comes time to introduce these new candidates. So all of a sudden, uh, Rowdy Gaines comes walking out. People are like, hey, Rowdy, Olympic gold medalist and whatnot. He just won a, a medal in 92. And hey, this is great. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, cool. Uh, 
a white ball dude from Auburn who swam. Okay, cool. Where's the real guys at? All right. So Rowdy gets a round of applause. And then all of a sudden after him, Frank Thomas comes out. So the big hurt. So, I mean, practicing batting stances all the time when you're a kid. Here's Frank Thomas. He's walking out. He's huge. I'm talking about he is massive. Biggest smile on his face. He comes out. People, people are clapping a little bit harder. They're kind of going crazy, right? Like, Frank, 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 Frank. It's Frank Thomas. And so Frank comes out, million-dollar smile. He's signing uh, autographs or whatever. And then all of a sudden, after him, walks in Charles Barkley. Now, this is Charles Barkley in 94, right? So, so this is like prime Barkley. Um, Barkley is from Leeds, Alabama, where, my fam- where we were yesterday, where my family's from. He's a massive deal in the world, but he's a massive deal in Birmingham. So he walks out. People go nuts. And Charles is there, you know, he's kind of feigning, like he don't really want to be there because that's just Charles. and He'd rather be somewhere else doing something else. So he's crazy and people are snapping photos and this light bulb's going off. And all of a sudden there was like a lull. And then the final inductee walked in and it was Bo Jackson. It was Bo. There aren't too many people, like two letters tell you everything that you need to know. Bo Jackson. Vincent Jackson walked into the room And it was like Jesus walked into the room. Everybody went nuts. Everybody went crazy. The light bulbs are going, I mean, all over the place. And I'm like, I feel it too. This is amazing. You could could tell there was an importance that each of the men brought with them into the room. But there was one man who owned the room. He walked in the room. There was a gravitas that he carried with him. You know these people, when they walk in a room, they just bring a presence with them. When he walked in the room, in a room full of superstars, let's not mention that John Smoltz and Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox were there. Let's not mention the NBA players, Horace Grant and uh, Robert Ory, who's from Alabama, from Huntsville, that they were also in the room. No, it was all about one dude, Bo Jackson. He was the man. He had the juice. He was the most important dude in the room. When we read in the Hebrew, kavod, the glory of God, it is that God is the most important being, not in the room, but in the universe. And with him carries a weight. You wonder why when people get in the presence of God, they fall on their face. It's because God's presence has a weight to it. You can't stand in his presence. His weight is too heavy. That's why God told Moses, if I give you my glory, you're going to die. It'll crush you. Not because it'll blind you. My weight, I'm too heavy. I carry too much to this game. So when we read glory in the New Testament, it is the gravitas, the weightiness, the importance, the all universal, powerful sovereignty of God that is untapped. And Paul is saying to him be the glory. Not to you Gentiles, not to you Jews, not to me. I'm the least of all of y'all in here. To him be the glory. Every good thing that we've ever done or received is a product of his grace every good moment that we've ever lived through, every good word that we've spoken as a product of his grace, to him be the glory. Now, earlier I said that there was a silent speaker in the first three chapters. And it's because apart from God's glory, you and I will make everything we do in our lives together about me. You'll make it about me. I'm saying that about you. You'll make everything about you. But what does it look like with a group of people who have their eyes squarely set on the glory of God? And it's here in God's glory. He says to him be the glory in the church. When enemies share food, when people who don't like each other babysit their kids, and when their teenagers grow up, they marry each other, and they go on vacations together, and they don't share the same opinions. They love each other. To God be the glory. When their worship is vertical, 
vertical and it's horizontally edifying. When they are together as one people, when the dividing wall of hostility has been broken, God is glorified. When Christ, who is our peace, becomes the arbiter between us in disputes, and when we ourselves begin to love one another and regard one another as better than we are, God is glorified. When the scriptures are open and we extol the beauties and the majesties of God in Christ by the power of the Spirit, God is glorified. When we encounter people and tell them that they are the inheritance of God, that they've been predestined and elected in love, that there is grace abounding to them in this moment, God is glorified. Glorified. And when and on that day when Jesus returns and cracks the sky, it will be God's glory that will cause all of the light to shine. And it will be to God's glory that all of us raise to newness of life. It is God's glory. Baby, don't get it twisted. There is nothing in this life that is about you. There is nothing in this church that is about you. There is nothing that happens within our lives together that is about you. This ain't about you. It is about God's glory and everyone who wants to make this about them has God's glory to deal with not me and the reality is that when we as the people of God as Christ with our peace by the power of the spirit ascribe glory to God in the church We practice now what will happen millions of years from now because of a small seed of faith. Watch this. To him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, throughout all generations here today because of a small kernel seed of faith inside of 12 men 2,000 years ago. Here we are. Do you feel it? Friends, this is way bigger than us. That's why this church won't be a personality-driven church. And if it is, its personality will be God's glory. It's why none of us should live lives where we are trying to make people into our own image. You should not be trying to tell people to do as you did. We must be pointing people to this, to be as Christ is and to do what he does. God's, man, let me say it this way. God's glory has pre-existed everything. God doesn't react to anything. He pre-acts everything. His glory has pre-existed all things, and it will be his glory that will exist long after us. Do you feel it? When we get to a place when we are more fearful and simultaneously wrapped up in joy because of God's glory, then we will begin to taste heaven as it is. We'll begin to taste the forever and ever. Don't lose that forever and ever, which means that what happens here in this church should be dress rehearsal for what's going to happen all of eternity. I, I, was, I, was never, I, I was never in the band. I'm getting happy now. I was never in the band, but I always fancied myself playing the quads. I just always wanted to play the quads. I, there was just something about the quads that was dope, and it was before Drumline came out. Nick Cannon made it look so cool, and I just wanted to play the quads. My sisters were in band. They played clarinet, which is a great uh, instrument weapon. I almost said weapon. It's a great instrument. My dad played the saxophone. It's a great weapon. I'm kidding. It's a great instrument. But there's something about the quads. But the thing about the quads is they were hard. They required practice. It required hours and hours of loud drumming, marching in place, beating, cross drumming. It required hours and hours and hours of practice. And I wasn't willing to put the time in to become proficient at playing the quads. As Christians, 
Are we willing to put the time in to become proficient at being Jesus to our neighbor so that the glory of God is magnified in all of the earth? And if we're not, and if we're not, that's fine. Just don't be mad when the rest of us are loving the mess out of each other. You're trying to figure out why your friend acting different. It's because something done got down off inside of them that they can't explain. It's causing them to act in a particular way so that God's glory might be on display. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. To God be the glory, great things he has done, who so loved the world that he gave us his son. It's easy to see God's glory in a sunset or a sunrise and say, wow, that's amazing. And it's easy to see God's glory in the birth of a child. Wow, that's amazing. And it's easy to see God's glory in mountains and lakes and rivers and streams. But when we begin to prize God's glory in one another, that's when we'll begin to experience God's glory. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and falling. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly. Above all that we can ask or think. Be according to the power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.